You're listening to The Cutting Edge, voices from the AHA. Hello, this is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal and host of this show. This podcast is presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. For over 45 years, Hilleberg the Tentmaker has been family-owned and family-run and has specialized exclusively in building strong, lightweight tents, never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Hilleberg tents are the go-to choice for discerning outdoor adventurers the world over, especially for those who travel in challenging terrain and conditions and who depend on utter reliability from their equipment. Conceived and developed in northern Sweden, Hilleberg tents are made in Europe, built to last, and offer the ideal balance of high strength, low weight, ease of use, and remarkable comfort. This episode of The Cutting Edge is also sponsored by Black Diamond Equipment. With heritage dating back to 1957, Black Diamond's innovative gear continues to set the standards for climbing, backcountry skiing, and mountain equipment. Whether you're a first-time climber, hiker, backcountry skier, or a seasoned alpinist, Black Diamond has the right gear for your next adventure. Black Diamond is a company of users. Their passion drives them to relentlessly design, engineer, and build the world's best climbing, skiing, and mountain equipment. Comprised of a worldwide family of climbers and skiers, BD is a company that's not just about making gear for rock climbers and skiers, but one that stands for the spirit and values of the sports they serve. The Cutting Edge features in-depth interviews with top climbers just after amazing climbs, and they don't get much more amazing than the latest speed record on the nose. In early June, Alex Honnold and Tommy Caldwell sliced more than 20 minutes off the nose record set by Brad Gobright and Jim Reynolds less than one year ago. But that wasn't even their main objective. The real goal was the four-minute mile of climbing, the nose in under two hours. We wanted to hear Alex and Tommy describe what went into their climb, and also how they feel about the recent speed climbing accidents and what they did to manage their own risk. We're going to be covering a lot of ground in this interview, so a few notes before we get started. You'll hear the name Hans, that's Hans Florine, who set many earlier nose records, and also Quinn Brett, who had a terrible accident during a speed attempt of her own last fall. You'll also hear some discussion of the Petzl Microtraction. That's a mini ascender that gets used in various off-label ways by speed climbers. And you'll hear mention of the Fitz Traverse. That's the Traverse of the Fitzroy Group in Patagonia that Alex and Tommy did in 2014. A couple of times, Tommy will mention a 100-foot fall he took during early rehearsals for the new speed record. Amazingly, this was on 5'8 terrain near the start of the stove leg cracks. It's a reminder that there's always the risk of a surprise fall on such speed attempts. It's a subject that Alex and Tommy discuss in depth toward the end of this show. I know there's going to be a lot of interest in what Tommy and Alex have to say about this climb. So sit back and relax as Chris Kalman starts us off. Today I'm here with two climbers that really require no introduction, Alex Honnold and Tommy Caldwell. So thanks a lot for joining us. Obviously we're here today to talk about you guys' insane new speed record on the nose, um, the 158 and 7 seconds that you set recently. So thanks a lot for being here. Our pleasure. Cool to be here. So my first question is for you, Tommy. The speed record thing has been kind of an informal competition ever since Bridwell, John Long, and Billy Westbay did the first nose in a day back in 1975. But you've never held, or as far as I can tell, even really attempted the record until now. So why now and why not before? Um, I mean, I, I think I've, I've always been somebody who was super into the free climbing. Like that's been my focus. Um, I always thought the speed climbing was a bit dangerous. Uh, so maybe that kept me away from it somewhat. Um, but I, I, I don't know, I guess I always had curiosity about it. So when Alex sort of proposed the idea, I, you know, I pretty much said re- yes right away. I did, I did climb the nose with Hans, you know, probably when I was like 18 years old, we climbed it in like four and a half hours. So, and I had never done anything like that at the time. And, um, and it was pretty exhilarating, you know, it was a cool experience, but I was kind of just helping him train for one of his other speed attempts. I think pretty shortly thereafter that is when he first broke it with Yuji Hirayama or, you know, got the record with Yuji Hirayama. And Alex, 
you've obviously been, you know, competing for the speed record on and off for a while now. Were you just biding your time until you had the opportunity to team up with Tommy? I mean, I can't imagine there's really a better partner in the world for you. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I hadn't, you know, I hadn't been that competitive about the speed record. I just did it with Hans once in 2012. And then, and even when Hans and I did it, I kind of thought that sub two hours was sort of the ultimate goal. But we set the record at 219. And so it didn't, or wait, no, sorry, we set the record at 223. And so it didn't really make sense to to push much more while we held the record. And so, uh, yeah, I was just waiting for somebody to break it so that I could try again with, you know, to try to go sub two. At the time that Jim and Brad broke the record, I think that everyone kind of knew that there was going to be uh, a retaliation, so to speak. Um, at when, when I heard that you two were teaming up, I mean, there wasn't really any doubt in my mind that you two were going to beat the record, but the two hour mark was really another question. Did you guys have any doubts about that? Why or why not? Uh, I certainly had doubts <laughs> about my ability to just keep up. I mean, I just wasn't experienced that experienced of a speed climber. And, um, you know, I didn't know if my, fit, I just hadn't really done anything like that. So I kind of told Alex, I was like, dude, I'll try. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Um, yeah, I mean, so I that's, definitely that's, had doubts. Yeah, but I mean, you say you don't have speed climbing experience, but everything we've done in our free climbing linkups is speed climbing. You know, I mean, it's like, we've yeah, that's true. And, and like, and the entire Fitz Traverse is speed climbing, you know, it's just that it's not. Yeah, that that's totally true. Like all the logistics and sort of the systems, I knew that, you know, we knew those quite well. We knew that we worked together really well in those ways. And it was just the speed aspect, like, the, like the breathing hard, like the fitness, yeah, yeah, like yeah, the totally. cardio fitness side totally. of it that I didn't, that I was uncertain about. But that side of it's like just as new for me, you know, it's not as if I, I mean, I try to never breathe hard. I mean, I don't really like moving that fast. <laughs> But which is interesting yeah. because it's like the sub two. I mean, we basically went sub two without. I mean, neither of us are even into like the red zone. You know, neither of us pushed that hard. Like, I, I seriously wonder what a, what a World Cup speed climber will do someday when someone like actually runs up though. It'll be like one. Yeah, I would. I would say. Yeah, I'd say I pushed to like in the red zone, climbing the last pitch. Um, but other than that, really not. Yeah. I mean, it's probably, I think you, you said this one time when we were doing it, you're like, I bet if we were wearing a heart rate monitor, our heart rate most of the time would be, you know, like similar to a brisk jog or something. Yeah. Or even a casual jog, just kind of like jogging. But then, yeah, I mean, for me, there was like a 30 foot section in the stove legs where I like red line when you're walking across Dole. And then there's like ladder and that's about it yeah for me it was the same like the actual final bolt ladder the last 150 feet that's where i redlined it because alex is on the top at that point so i'm just like all right the clock's just waiting for me i better go obviously the gap between you two and the average climber is immense but i do kind of want to return to that question real quick tommy you say that you weren't redlining except for in a couple of spots and yet you had your doubts about whether you guys would beat the two-hour mark. So where's the gap in there? Uh, well, before we started trying it this year, I had my doubts. Once we started trying it, I was like, this is just way more chill than I thought it would be. Um, like we were able to climb the nose in, <clears throat> in like three hours without even trying to speed climb kind of like we would use the systems but we'd stop we'd like rehearse sections we'd tick holds we'd do all that and it would still only take us like three hours so um, i don't know I if just, it was really reported but i mean i think we did 11 or 12 burns total and um and i think the first one was four hours the second one was like three hours and then all the rest of them were in the twos and uh, mm -hmm. and by the end i mean us doing a super casual burn where we would stop and take footholds and like practice and deal with things was still like a two and a half hour burn which would have been a record you know what seven years ago or something so right. you know I mean, we were consistently logging what what until pretty recently would have been considered an, like an elite burn on the nose and we were doing that like day in day out as like casual practice you know so i mean it i, I mean i don't think either of us really doubted that we were capable of going sub two it was more like whether or not we'll see it through to the end whether or not we'll actually put the time in you know, whether or not we'll actually try. How far out in advance were you guys training for this? Um, like, when did the idea kind of hatch? Did you guys, were you doing hangboarding workouts or jogging? 
what did you do to prep physically and mentally and, and for how long? I don't know. Had we, we talked about it in the winter maybe, right? How long how yeah, how long ago? Oh no, actually even last fall we climbed the nose once just to like see if we enjoyed it. Yeah. So I guess we've been sort of talking about it for six months. Yeah, last fall. Um we were both in Yosemite anyways and we started talking about it and I was like, Well let's climb it once just to see if I feel like it's safe enough. Because I think that was my big concern. So many people have gotten hurt. And then once we climbed it once, I was like, that felt chill. That felt totally safe enough. So that's when I started thinking about it. Um but life was just too hectic for me to train specifically for the most part. I did I went on a bouldering trip to Fontainebleau, like, I don't know, a month and a half before Yosemite, and that gave me, like, power. <laughs> and then in the, in the monthly, which doesn't really help that much, really, but, at least, but at least I was rock climbing. And then, uh, and then in the couple weeks leading up to it, I started doing, like, the occasional bike ride and jog just because I felt like I needed to get my cardio up as well and tread wall workout. So that's kind of what I did. It wasn't it wasn't very scientific though, that's for sure. What about the mental aspect? Did that require any training or like you said you guys have so much experience with speed climbing was that just kind of on lockdown for you guys? I think for most for both of us the mental aspect is kind of like the easiest one. We just like come by that naturally. Yeah, I think so. And I, and I think that um the biggest thing for us was probably just practicing on the route. Because, I mean, I, I think one of the things that we were really good about was uh, debriefing on the way down and talking through strategy, talking through beta, um, you know, like giving feedback and, and just evaluating like what we did and what we could have done better. I mean, because we spent quite a bit of time talking about, you know, like, what does it feel like for you when I'm climbing past this part? Or like, where are you exactly when I clip this bolt or unclip this bolt? And like, what's the rope drag like? What kind of gear should we change? Like, could you place that piece a little lower so it doesn't get stuck? You know, things like that. No. Um, yeah, as as well as figuring out and discussing just beta. Like, do you put your left foot there? Do you put your right foot there? Yeah, which sounds did, totally a bit of that. But, I mean, it sounds ridiculous that we're, like, talking through the beta on different moves. But, I mean, because it, it's 3,000 feet of climbing. But um, but by the end, I mean, we, we both were climbing the route pretty consistently the same way, really smoothly. Um, and I think that's maybe something that um, that other people haven't done to the same extent on the nose. I mean, I think just learning it well was really important. Yeah, like, for instance, I went without Alex and rehearsed the first four pitches a few times and, like, ticked every hold and really, you know, like, worked it kind of the same way I would if I was trying to do, like, a 9A sport route or something, even though it's only 5'10 climbing. But I only did that for, you know, 10% of the route. Mm -hmm. So if you were to do that on the whole route, it would make you go much faster. Yeah, or if someone wanted to, like, improve on style, they could do two hours or less without ticking anything. Totally, yeah. Tick mark, tick marks. No, that's <laughs> that's next level. I think that'd be a terrible idea. <laughs> I think I think tick marks are tick marks are the beta. <laughs> tick marks are definitely. I mean, because it's like as soon as it. I mean, when you think of how many aid climbers are up there pooping on the ledges and like peeing all over everything, I'm like, if anyone gives you creep about tick marks, you're like f off. Yeah, actually, one of our biggest hazards was Alex was climbing up in the gray bands and grabbed this this puddle of herba mate. <laughs> <laughs> dropped by some aid climbers so yeah there's the, there's those <laughs> no totally i gave i gave like a shit too when uh when we caught up with them i was like dude you left the yerba mate all over the freaking jugs i was like what the heck so i was doing the the linhill traverse and like all the all the big holds had like freaking yerba mate all over them it was all like dried and flaky and i was like what the f yeah it's funny because i mean when you're aid climbing you just don't even think about that stuff you know, you're not like, oh, the jug got a little, got a little, got some leaves on it. You know, like what a bummer. Because it's like you just spent the whole day like hooking and like lowering out and doing all this stuff. You don't even realize that people are like actually holding on to the rug. <laughs> um, could you guys walk me through the day of the send a little bit? Like what time did you start? How long did it take to get up to the king swing? I mean, do you guys even do the king swing? Um did everything basically go 100% as planned or, or were there like moments when you thought, uh-oh, we might not make it? Um, should we start at the bottom? <laughs> yeah. Well, and also, Chris, uh, uh, the, the king swing is part of the official rules for the nose. You have to go that way to, to officially do the speed gotcha. record on the nose. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. That makes sense, though. Uh, okay, since I, since I led the bottom, I'll start us off. Um, <clears throat> we started at six o'clock and some undetermined amount of seconds 
Um, luckily, it was right around six o'clock though, because my watch I, I messed it up and I didn't actually have the correct time on my watch as we were climbing. And then we climbed to Sickle Ledge. I got to Sickle Ledge in eleven minutes, which was awesome. Everything went great going up to there. I think Alex started climbing when I clipped a bolt about two thirds of the way up pitch one. So that's when he starts. I basically start a hundred feet out. I try to stay about a hundred feet behind Tommy. Yeah. And so when we when we start, you know, I climb up. Alex starts simul climbing at 100 feet and then we just kind of climb together on pitch two i do a little penji so he knows for instance that he's at the bolt on pitch one as i'm doing the penji um and this is sort of some of the stuff we choreograph and then i do the penji and then i get to a bolt about 80 percent of the way pitch through pitch three when he gets to that penji and then i just clip the bolt and then he penjis across and then we do the next pitch and I cl- and then I clipped a, a little uh, traction device on the bolt at the beginning of sickle ledge. And then as soon as I get to sickle, I just run across sickle and pretty, pretty, di- pretty quickly that distance between us goes from a hun- from hundred feet to 200 feet as I'm running across sickle ledge because I'm on much faster terrain. Um, but that little device makes it so that if Alex slips off and like the, you know, the kind of the sketchier climbing, getting to sickle, he doesn't pull me off because I don't have a whole lot of gearing at that point. Um, well, and, and that way I can do the pendulum without having yeah, to Yeah, there's you. a couple little penjis on this sickle ledge as well that you have to do. So he can just kind of do those without us having to coordinate that I have, you know, gear in the proper spot or whatever. <clears throat> then we climb up sickle as fast as we can because that's like, you know, 5-4 terrain. Um, oh, and by the way, we're clipping mostly fixed gear. Um, I think I used three cams between the ground and sickle ledge only. Um, I used two camps. That's true. That is crazy. Yeah. And, and two of those are on the first, or yeah, yeah, just three camps total. No, one's on the first pitch. Yeah, two on the yeah, second, and, on and the then second. none on the third or the fourth pitch because it's all bolts and fixed pins and stuff. Um, use, use a couple cams going up sickle ledge and then I don't use any cams from there all the way. Like no, I use one cam in all of the stove legs and the rest is just clipping fixed gear. Um, so anyways, we get to the top of sickle ledge. Um, I get to the penji point and I just clip it and then wait the rope. And luckily on our, on this go, there was somebody at that penji point, which meant I could just clip into one of their draws, which which helped us a little bit and i'll tell you why in a second so we lowered down so i I clipped that and then i just like sit on the rope and then kind of pull alex up about 30 feet you know he kind of like runs up the fourth class climbing and i and i lower down about 30 feet and then i do a pendulum across and then as soon as i do that pendulum we're just both climbing um up pretty easy terrain and then i get to a place where you clip a couple bolts getting into the stove legs and at that point um oh, and then i get into the stove legs and climb up a little bit and that point alex gets to the pendulum he swings across in the same place i did and usually you would have to then pull the rope but there's a part but there's a bit but there's somebody there so they're able to just unclip the rope and drop it for us oh man that's got to nullify the rope <laughs> no that's yeah, funny when brad, keep going when brad and jim did it they said that like most of the time that they did it, there was somebody there. It was surprising how often there was a party at that spot. Um, so then from there, we just traditionally climb up the stove legs. And I think Alex is just faster at climbing the stove legs. So he tends to gain on me through that whole section. Um, and that's where I'm real slow because the stove legs get, you know, kind of wider and wider as you, as you get higher. And so that was sort of physically one of the more exhausting part of the routes for me. Um, just cause I guess I'm not that efficient of a wide crack climber. Um, or you, but, I mean, your hands are just slightly smaller too. I mean, yeah, I do have little, I do have little baby hands for sure. So <laughs> that could have something to do with it. But, uh, by the time I get to Dolt Tower, what are you, you're like a hundred feet below me. Is that right, Alex? Um, yeah, yeah. Somewhere in there. Cause yeah, I normally wind up quite a ways behind you at the pendulum. Like, um, especially if I actually have to untie and pull the rope and retie at the pendulum off sickle, then I wind up being like almost 200 feet behind you. But then I try to gain through the stove legs until I'm about 100 again. But the thing is, I can't gain too much because there isn't enough gear. You know what I mean? So- yeah, there's a couple. There's a couple places where you have to stop and wait. Where you, sometimes you would stop and wait for um, for 30 yeah. seconds or so, yeah, totally. so that I'd get more gear clipped. Because we're always trying to keep at least like two or three pieces clipped between us. I think there's always at least one anchor between us. Um, and you know as well as another piece or two so uh 
yeah, we get to we get I get to Dolt Tower, and then once I'm in Dolt Tower, I just run across the top of Dolt Tower, and then Alex. That's where he had to go real fast because he's on much slower climbing there than I am. So yeah, I'm climbing like a number three crack, and Tommy's walking, and I'm just like, oh god, trying to go up so at the same at walking speed. But then as soon as Tommy steps yeah. off the other side of the tower, then I can slow back down and catch my breath. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I'd climb across Dolt Tower, down and around, and then start going up like this kind of easy terrain but that's all that's all like five 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 six until you go to a number three crack and i'm clipping the anchors clipping the occasional fixed piece <laughs> I, th- I think i think that's all five nine on uh, the topo okay. just put that out there okay, five, five nine so it's five nine but then there's like this perfectly placed number four camelot that's totally wedged in the crack really well um you know about 150 feet past gold tower that i would clip that and that would allow alex to just penji off of Dolt Tower instead of having to do the down climb. So I'd take for a second. It was another like perfectly choreographed timing thing where like right as I'm walking across Dolt, Tommy would be just getting to the number four. He would just clip it. I'd swing over and we'd keep climbing like without even skipping a beat. And it was, uh, it was pretty yeah. awesome. And we would, and we would, you know, we'd be yelling little, little like markers. I'd be like five feet right, from right. the piece, you know, stuff like that. Um, you know, I'm climbing the easy track so that we'd be able to choreograph that stuff a little bit better. We actually, Randy Levitt um, texted Alex. He's like, you should get some <laughs> like headsets, like spies so that you guys can talk to each other. Yeah, so Bluetooth <laughs> and Alex is like, that's a brilliant idea. And then I was like, dude, that would mean you would just be able to hear how loud I was breathing the whole time. And that might wake you up. So anyways, we didn't do that. But um, I, I do think that might be the future of speed climbing. It's kind of visionary. <laughs> So, anyways, um, yeah. So the that that trend from Dolt Tower up to um, uh, Texas Flake is is pretty fast climbing for the most part. So we would go up that really quick, um, just kind of bypass El Cap Tower, climb up, and then and then I'd wedge myself behind Texas Flake. Um, Alex is just having no problem keeping up through all of that stuff, and then I climb up Texas. You know, you kind of uh, chimney up behind Texas Flake as fast as you can, and then you get to a bolt ladder. Um, and weirdly for me, the bolt ladders were some of the slower sections. Um, we didn't use aiders or anything. We would just kind of have a draw on each hand, wow. and, you know, kind of clip our way up the bolt ladders. But I started to get it towards the end, so I had like this way of gripping the draws. So I'd have like two fingers through the beaner mm-hmm. and then one on the gates all the time, so I could kind of just operate the gates and. You know, at, at one point I was like, oh, it'd be great if we just had these two hooks in our hands that we, with handles that we could just kind of climb, climb bolt ladders that way. Um, but anyways, I'd climb up the bolt ladder and Alex would be gaining on me through that section. Um, then there's a little bit of aid climbing uh, after the bolt ladder before you get into boot flake. And so I had a cam hook with me. And so I'd use a cam hook. Um, still no atrias. Like occasionally I'd stand in a sling do the aid climbing, but we didn't have any atrias or anything like that. Um, and then we get to boot flake and Alex is climbing up the bat boot, the bolt ladder at that point, by the time I'm in boot flake, is that right, Alex? Yeah. And the whole time that Tommy's doing the bolt ladder and the aid climbing, he's back on like a normal belay, but through when he's going up to El, past El Cap tower and into Texas, um, I would just drop the Grigory off so that he would just be able to run, run the slack. Basically, it's just too hard to manage all the extra slack. So, um, so we try to coordinate. The, and the other thing is that him being on belay doesn't make any difference when he's in the chimney anyway, because uh, if he fell either way, he'd land in the bottom of the chimney. Which, by the way, is the same if you're, you know, climb if you're a five six climber and you're climbing totally. El Cap for the first time. There's yeah, no yeah, totally. In, anyway, like that's just the way the route is there. But so I would I would gain on him through that, and then by the time he was into the hard stuff, he'd be back on normal belay, and then uh, yeah, and then the point for me was to basically gain on him the whole the whole time through there so that by the time he got to the top of the boot i would be perfectly poised like right you know ready to to clean the aid and swing over yeah can you yeah sorry can you just walk me through that because i remember hearing that so the boot is obviously where quinn took her uh horrible fall um which we'll talk about a little more later but i heard you guys developed a way to to actually protect that section without losing any time well that's that's half true i just i just basically did not want to repeat what quinn did and so what we did 
cost us time, but was safer. So basically once I got to boot flake, so, so the thing about boot is it's like 510, but it's like a little bit slippery. So anyways, I would get into boot flake. I would, so I'm, the traditional way that people would do it, like Quinn is I think they'd clip the last bolt and the bolt ladder. They'd back clean the aid climbing, which is about 20 feet. And then they'd free solo boot flake. Uh-huh. Um, so what I did is I actually, clipped the aid gear on uh, you know for that 20 feet of aid climbing i left that clipped then i got to boot flake and about so then i'd run it out about 50 feet but i'm still really far above texas flake i'm like 100 feet above texas flake at that point so i'd put in a piece about 50 feet up boot flake and then i would climb the last 25 feet to the top of boot protected by this really really bomber like number one camelot mm. that i had left in boot flake and so that's you know i just basically i'd place a lot more gear mm-hmm. And then by the time I got to, to the top of boot flake, Alex would be at that last bolt of the bolt ladder. And so generally, the fastest way is you clip the anchor at the top of boot flake as the leader. The second then just unclips that last bolt and swings across. So what we did, which was slower but safer, is I clipped that, that anchor at the top of boot flake, and then I just sat on the rope, and then I pulled Alex up the next uh, like 20 feet of aid climbing while he while he cleaned that gear and then I was going down to that 20 feet and I was able to back clean that one piece that I had put in Texas flake. And so then, so then as I and did the King swing and then I'd be setting up my Jumar. Yeah. I'd be setting up my Jumars as Alex was climbing. And so then as soon as Alex was able to clean that last piece of the aid climbing and I had already cleaned that one piece that I put in boot flake, uh, he would be doing the the king swing as I'd be jugging back up to the top of boot flake. Yeah. So he swings across, you jug back up to the top of the boot, and then he's going to climb up above that, and then you'll penji over under him. Yeah, and honestly, I bet that was like two minutes slower than the other way that people do it. And then I actually get like three or four minutes to just chill, and then you can take over from here, Alex. Yeah, and now we swung into the, me in the lead. Um, and so then, yeah, so Tommy chills on top of the boot. I swing over. I climb the two pitches up to the Lynn Hill Traverse without placing any gear so that, uh, so that Tommy can just swing over cleanly straight to the bolts on the Lynn Hill Traverse. Mm-hmm. And then um, and from there, I clip all the bolts as I do the Traverse. Um, it's all kind of lovely, kind of like half free, half, half pulling on the draws. Um, and he put, and a, and he put a micro-traction on the beginning of the Lynn Hill Traverse. Okay. So that, um, so that I could, so that, so I could swing off the top of boot while he was climbing the Lynn Hill Traverse. I just want to ask real quickly, um, technically micro tractions, according to Petzl are not meant for use in this capacity or are they starting to change their tune on that? Because it's pretty much the, the tool, uh, that everyone uses for something like this. Uh, yeah, they're definitely they're definitely not meant for this use. <laughs> I've uh, I've I've talked to a lot of you know rope, like people that have tested them out for this mm-hmm. use a lot, and basically you a micro traction can withstand a three kilonewton fall, which isn't much. You know, it's pretty easy to generate that without kind of desheathing the uh-huh. rope. So what that means when you're following with a micro traction on the rope, you just need to make sure that you don't take more than like a you know, a real short fall. Gotcha. And, and um, it's important as and, a and leader like to know that it's, it's important when you're leading to know that they're not rated to whip on. So, you know, even though you place it to protect your second, you also have to clip another bolt above it or something to protect you because you just can't whip on the micro traction. Yeah. So this is definitely like, I mean, there's so much of this whole thing. You have to have a really, really, really good understanding of the systems and the potential forces and all the scenarios before you can do it relatively safely. Yeah, sure. <laughs> all right, go ahead, Alex. Keep going. Um, but so, yeah, so then we romp across the gray bands, um, all pretty mellow. So then I'm in the great roof, which is probably the slowest pitch on the entire route for us, I think. Um, and I think that's actually probably true for almost all parties climbing the nose just because it's kind of a long pitch and it's just kind of slow um yeah and i time and i timed alex on it one time just for the great roof took him 10 minutes although i I think when we broke the record it probably took you more like six minutes yeah yeah i think that's probably fair but so that's still one of the slower pitches um 
but the great roof is mostly fixed right now or there are a lot of nuts in it so i was like mostly free climbing and clipping nuts and then even up into the hard part of the roof i basically it was so i french free the whole thing i never actually i did it without even placing a single camera really i actually towards the end i started placing a cam as like a backup because i was a little bit afraid of one of these nuts but um but i never actually waited any cams i would just like free climb and pull on nuts and then right now there's like this lower out pendulum thing in the middle of the roof which I guess has existed there since when Brad and Jim did the record. So, I mean, it's been at least a couple of years. That and there's the, Hubers had, the Hubers had that too because I watched them one time do that. So uh, I, I think theirs thing. was further to the left. There used to, that anchor used to be further left. Anyway, it's like basically the fixed gear moves around in the roof. And the way it is right now is there's like a lower out anchor, like a pin and a nut straight in the middle of the roof. And so I would go up and I'd clip those. And then uh, some of the climbing rangers actually put up a new route next to the nose recently, um, which seems kind of cool. It's like some new A5 or A4 or something that parallels the nose, like uh, really incipient seams and like, uh, you know, beaking. And Mm -hmm. it seems kind of cool. But so there's this bolt on the route now that uh, it's kind of like down and right of the great roof that I'm sure they did not think would impact Mm -hmm. the nose like at all. But I was like looking at it because I was like, oh, there's this new route over there. Like, that's interesting. and. and then I realized that there are all these edges that come down below the anchor at the end of the great roof. And so I realized that I could just swing from the pendulum point, catch the bolt, grab the edges next to it, and then face climb straight up to the anchor. And the whole thing was like quite a bit easier than debating the rest of the great roof, or just more straightforward in some ways. But part of that's because there was no gear in the rest of the great roof right now. Like six years ago, when I, when I soloed the nose and did a couple other things, there was like fixed gear all the way across the great roof. And you could basically like hand over hand across it. Um, and right now there's none of that. So it yeah, makes more I, sense to do. When I freed it, it was that way. I mean, usually there's fixed gear just for whatever reason it's gone now. Yeah. But that stuff kind of comes and goes. So it's like, there's no fixed gear, which you're like, Oh, bummer. But then it's like, I pioneered this new way with swinging off the middle of the roof and then catching these edges out to the right and then face climbing straight up. And I was like, Oh, it seems kind of better. And the nice thing about doing it the pendulum way is that it pulls Tommy up for, you know, 15 gotcha. feet or something of the climbing. So it makes it a little bit easier. Like, for instance, I know, I would know that I would try and be at this, at this fixed pin that was about 30 feet up the great roof pitch right when Alex got to the Penji point. And so I would clip into that direct belay Alex for like the, the sketchiest, like the part where he's clipping the kind of the worst fixed nuts. I just blame him traditionally. I'd get probably like 20 seconds okay. of rest there or something. He clipped that Penji point and then I'd unclip from that and just take on the Grigri and I would just like yard up on, on the crack with, you know, <laughs> Alex waiting the other end of the rope and I'd get to go up like 20 feet or something with zero effort essentially because Alex is so heavy. <laughs> which, then, which is, yeah, whatever. <laughs> which is a pretty comical feeling, though, because Tommy's lowering me, but I, I lower in these, like, big jerky motions because every time he grabs the crack and pulls, right. he flies up a couple feet and I drop a couple feet. But so it feels ridiculous because I'm basically, like, <laughs> dropping in fits and starts while I'm running side to side because I'm trying to get this huge swing going so I can catch this tat and then pull onto the edges. It's all pretty funny, but, um, but it worked perfectly. And so, um, and then the idea was that I would get to the anchor um, when Tommy's high enough up the great roof pitch so that I can short fix enough rope. Uh, so that's where I switched to short fixing. So I would pull up all the extra slack and fix it. Tommy would start to jug. Um, and, and ideally, he would be high enough in the great roof that I would have enough slack that I can finish the whole pancake flake without running out of rope, or at least finish you know, most of the next pitch without running out of rope. Yeah, and so while Alex is climbing Pancake Flake, I actually am jumaring up the Great Roof and lowering out from that Penji point. Gotcha. Um, so I read that at some point Tommy lost, dropped, somehow jettisoned a jumar and was jugging some of this upper part with <laughs> one jug and his hand. Uh, so could you go into a little bit of detail about like when that happened, uh, the relative safety of chugging with a hand and a jug? How did that all go down? Okay, so um, well, this is this is where uh, this is where Tommy climbing in font really pays <laughs> off, you know, because his strong fingers just clamp onto the rope. Yeah, like okay. No so um, when you lower out and then do all that, just inevitably, like the your jumars get all twisted and everything around the rope and it just gets kind of clustered. It's not a very easy scene. So what happened on our, on our record go is I did that lower out. Um, I pulled the rope. Luckily it didn't get stuck on that sling. 
Um, so I didn't have to untie, but my jumers were all clustered around the rope. So I started unclipping them and trying to just like sort it out. Meanwhile, the loop of rope that Alex has to keep climbing is, is getting quite small. So I know I need to unfix that anchor as quickly as possible. And so I think what I did is I just unclipped my jumer. I thought I had clipped it back into the sling, but I hadn't clipped it in properly or something. And I just let go of it and it, you know, fell to the ground. Um, so I just had one jumar. And I'm like, oh, God, I was like, we're doing so good. I just botched it. And so what I do is I, I just went into reactionary mode. Um, I managed to unfix the rope so Alex could keep climbing. Um, he short fixed the next anchor pretty quickly. And usually what I do on the next part is climbing the bottom half of Pancake Flake is, is, is it's like 510 or something. It's pretty easy. It's actually faster to, to climb it than it is to Jumar it. So usually I climb that. So what I did is I climbed that 60 feet. I got to this ledge and I was like, oh, I'm only, I'm only 20 feet from the anchor at this point. So I just grabbed my Jumar, clipped it onto the rope. And then I just like campus Jumar with one Jumar that last 20 feet um, with my feet on the foothold. So it wasn't that big of a deal. So anyways, he would short fix on camp five, which is, or no, you'd short yeah. fix. Yeah. On camp five, which is, um, you know, two pitches after the great roof, I'd be a pitch below, um, and then, and then, and then on the final go, I, you know, I only had one Jumar and, and I was like, Oh, how can I do this really fast? And I was, you know, it's kind of a dihedral. So I was like, maybe I can just stem my feet up the two sides of the dihedral and campus jug with one Jumar Is that what you did? <laughs> for this one pitch. Yeah. So that's what I did there as well. So that's kind of grim. It was kind of similar to what I did on the pancake flake. Um, on the top of the pancake flake, but I did it for like 40 feet or whatever, which was kind of tiring, honestly. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's what I did on that pitch too. Um, and then and then usually when I got to that short fixed anchor, Alex would be starting up the, you know, probably the slowest part of the route for you in some ways, which is the glowering spot, like this aid climbing section right off of Camp 5. Um, so I would unfix the rope there, and then I would and then I would belay him as I climbed, we kind of traditionally simul climb until I got up on the very top of camp five because camp five is kind of this multi-tiered ledge. Um, so I'd actually almost catch up to you there. I'd probably be like 40 feet below you. Yeah. Um, when you finish that aid climbing section. Because that aid climbing, I'm actually standing in slings and like placing pieces and then clipping into them. It's, there's just no super fast way to do it. I mean, I had it pretty dialed at the end, but it's still just fundamentally like stepping in a sling and placing a cam is like a lot slower than free climbing. Right. But yeah. Um, but so then, yeah, I, I would get out of the aid climbing and reach back into five ten fingers and then punch it from there back up to the next anchor. And then I'd short fix again. And then basically from there to the summit, I was just in full. Like, so the end of the glowering spot marked the beginning of my, my sprint to the finish line. Uh -huh. And so the pitch above the glowering spot is just like sort of five ten hands. Um, I wouldn't place anything. I would just punch it. Um, and then, you know, short fix Tommy a little bit be below camp six, actually, because that way um, the pitch is shorter. It basically, there's like this random two-bolt anchor below camp six that makes more sense to fix from. Um, and then we'd simul through camp six, and then I'd short fix, you know, above the changing corners. Um, but basically from there to the top is just like full climbing as fast as I can. Like, here we go. We're going to the top. Yeah, and, and for me on the bottom end through that stuff, I'm probably half jumaring and half simul climbing. And it's right. steep jumaring, so I knew that I wasn't going to be able to camp this <laughs> jumar anymore. Um, so, so what I did is I took our micro traction and I used that as my lower jumar. Um, so I just I put that on the rope like a jumar, which made it slightly more annoying. Like it maybe slowed me down a few seconds per pitch or something to be jumaring with a micro traction and a jumar. Um, but I figured out the system that whenever Alex, I never had to take that micro traction off the rope because whenever I'd finish a jumaring section and I'd get to an anchor and then Alex would short fix, I would just hold the uh, the teeth open on the micro traction as he pulled all the rope up. Um, so I didn't have you know because it's kind of time consuming to take the the traction off and then put it on the rope. So I didn't have to do that. But all this was sort of like reacting in the moment. That's one of the things about speed climbing the nose is it's never going to go perfect. Or maybe it, it could theoretically go perfect, but it never went perfect for us. So when things do go slightly wrong, you just have to figure out how to react quickly. Yeah, I think I think on the record go, because Tommy was missing a jug, he was maybe slightly i don't know like the timing felt slightly different because normally he would gain on me a little bit more because normally jugging is just like a lot faster um than than some of the climbing 
And so then he would have like slightly more time with the anchors to like deal and unfix and whatever. And I think on the record go, it was maybe a little bit more, uh, you know, I was sort of pulling, I was going pretty fast and, and Tommy, you know, it was obviously harder to jug with, with one hand. Um, but, but ultimately it didn't really seem to matter that much because he was basically still catching up in time. So it wasn't slowing me down. And so, you know, the timing still worked fine. We were both still going as fast as we could. Yeah. And then the last couple pitches at the top, I'm really trying to gain on Alex. Um, because when you get to the top, you know, the clock doesn't stop until the second person gets to the top. So I'm trying it's to also like, a safe I'm, place I'm just... to gain on me because, uh, from the wild stance, which is the last bolted anchor, I clip those bolts and then I climb, you know, 40 feet of 510 crack or something. And then I'm into the final bolt ladder, which gets you to the summit. And so that's like, I don't know, 20 or 25 bolts or something, or maybe 20. And so I clip several of those. That means that Tommy can get pretty close to me. Basically, he can gain as much as he physically can, because no matter what, there are going to be a bunch of bolts clipped between us. And then, and then I'll just be running across the top anyway. So it's the perfect place for Tommy just to unload and, and catch up to me as fast, as quickly as he can. And I think at the end, we had sort of decided that it was easiest for us just to drop all the slack out of the Grigri too. So we're basically both just climbing as fast as we can up that section with bolts clipped between us, but with a lot of slack out. But it's interesting because off the final bulge, if either of us fell, even if we took like a hundred footer off the final head wall, um, I don't think you'd even touch the wall, you know, because it's all steep. It'd be, it'd be, it'd be traumatizing no. for sure, but I think you'd be fine. Yeah. It'd, it'd be really scary. Yeah, so when I when Alex would be climbing up the bolt ladder and I'd get to the wild stance, usually I'd probably be, be about a hundred feet from him. Um, and that, and I would, I just, I would just dump, I, I took off the micro traction there. I took off my Grigri. And so we just had this loop between us, um, while we were simul climbing the last pitch, but it seemed fine. But, uh, but then that loop goes away pretty quick because as I'm climbing up the bolts, Alex is like running up to the tree at the top. And then all of a sudden there's like no slack left. And, uh, and so he, he just like runs around the tree and starts pulling me, um, as I'm climbing up the last bolts. And I always know, um, you know, on all, all the previous attempts, I would be kind of pulling over the last bulge as the rope would come tight. Um, but on, on our record go, I was actually like, I don't know, 20 feet past that. So I was like, yeah, I must be doing good. I caught up 20 feet more. <laughs> and uh, But then so for the last like little traverse section and then coming around by the last anchor, Alex was just tugging me up. And then I'm, that's when I'm breathing super hard, trying to just sprint to the tree as fast as I can. Yeah, I mean, and, and on the record burn, uh, when I get around the tree and I, I pull up a little slack and then I clip into the rope and I'm just like walking backward, pulling on the rope as hard as I can to pull Tommy up, it's kind of like an easy way to belay. Because um, I don't have a belay device anyway, but um, but that way I can sort of body weight haul him past the tree. Right. But uh, that's when I pull out my pull my phone out of my pocket and check the timer. Uh-huh. And uh, in this case, uh, I mean, I guess it must have been 157 when I looked at it. Tommy was like right behind me as it turns out. But um, but so I saw that we were sub two and I was like, come on, Tommy, come on. Because <laughs> you know? uh, the thing is, is like, because uh, I've always, doing it with Hans and doing it with Tommy, I've always led the top and you always top out and you see the timer. Uh-huh. And then you're like, tick tock, tick tock, waiting for your partner to get there. Because you're like, you know, like, oh, I made it in this time. I, I really hope that. You know, because you just don't know what's going to happen. You know, like maybe the rope will get tangled, maybe something, you know, like who knows what. And you're like, come on, get up here. And then on the record burn, you know, I'm all yelling and, and Tommy got up probably a minute later. And uh, yeah, and so we finished at one, 158, which is pretty awesome. So you guys, you all know it's pretty, pretty interesting. I'm sitting here looking at the clock on the recording. I think it took you guys about 20 somewhere between 20 to 25 minutes to give me the play-by-play on that, which is about uh, somewhere between a fifth and a sixth of the amount of time it took you to climb it. I mean, it's just absolutely astounding. So, you know, big congrats to both of you guys. Um, yeah, I, I know that it sounds, the way you describe it, you know, you downplay it a little bit and say that you weren't redlining, but it really is a truly superhuman feat, you know, and so big congrats. Thanks. And, and actually, um, I mean, we, we were talking earlier about strategy. So, I mean, what we just did going through the play-by-play is literally what Tommy and I would do every time we climbed it on the hike down and then back in the cars and then sometimes in the evening, like over dinner. But like this kind of debriefing where it's like, 
you know, I mean, we would be talking through this nonstop with like, oh, maybe you should try to gain a little bit more of, or like, or maybe you should draw back or maybe you should take the Grigory off or like, you know, what if we clip this bolt instead of that bolt? I mean, like this type of gaming out scenarios and talking it through is what we did a lot of and which, yeah. and I think it's what made it, made it doable. Yeah. So as you guys were describing your climb to me, you both referenced different safety aspects quite a number of times you know where you made it safer than it had been in the past or where you had calculated a fall would be safe because the wall was steep enough i think you know the reason for that is um pretty obvious and so i want to just change gears real quick and talk a little bit about uh risk and speed climbing um between the time that you guys broke Brad and Jim's record and the time that you went sub two, two very talented and loved climbers in the community, Jason Wells and Tim Klein, died in a tragic simul climbing accident on the pre-blast. And of course, there have been a variety of other high profile accidents um, in the recent past as well, including uh, Hans Florin's fall, which left him with two broken legs and, and Quinn's hundred footer, which caused her the use of her legs. Um, so on this subject, can you guys just talk a little about how, for one, how Jason and Tim's accident affected your decision to either continue trying for the record or to back off? Um, you know, Tommy, you took a hundred footer. That's the same length of the fall that, that cost Quinn her, the use of her legs. I mean, how did you decide after taking that fall to keep going? What do you guys make of everything that's going on right now as far as these high-profile moments when we're celebrating speed climbing and then mourning the results of it? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I can go into this a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been heavy, honestly, lately with with all this going down. And it's, it's hard to know. I think, I think it's a little bit like when, when Alex and I climb together, it feels fine. Like it doesn't feel that dangerous. Like for me, it feels way less dangerous than going in Alpine terrain, um, which a lot of people do, but these people are getting hurt. So it makes you second guess that a little bit. And sometimes I wonder if it's a little bit like wingsuiting was you know there's a big period of time where people were like oh if you pack your shoot right and you analyze everything and you're super systematic you can make it kind of safe and then all these people die and you're like well maybe it's just never that safe um you know obviously it's a spectrum the more experienced you are the more analytical you are the safer it's going to be um you know i think alex and i have you know we're, we're probably the people that have spent the most time free climbing or speed climbing on El cap than anybody so we're able to probably make it safer than some people um but you know, I do, I do second guess that, especially when there's deaths. I mean, I think, I mean, and, and all that stuff is, and that's the thing hard. with, with uh, Jason and Tim is that, you know, I mean, between the two of them, they'd climbed all caps. They're so experienced and it's been so much time on all cap. I mean, that is pretty sobering, um, that they could have an accident like that. Um, especially doing sort of the same, you know, roughly the same strategies that Tom and I are doing. Um, though, I mean, you know, the, the cause of that whole accident isn't, you know, I mean, there's no definitive explanation for what happened with them. Um, but, but I mean, they were very much doing the same sorts of things that we were, and they had this similar level of experience. And so uh, that is very sobering, but, you know, at the same time, you know, Tommy and I both kind of already know that the consequences of, you know, certain types of, of mistakes could be, could be disastrous. And so, you know, we're already doing our best to mitigate risk where we can. Um, you know, like having a, a stark reminder like that is just, you know, it's just that it's a reminder. It's just like, well, I mean, we're already trying to be as safe as we can. We just have to keep it up. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the hardest part was that, that all the, all the, all the accidents surrounding the nose and speed climbing lately have stressed out my friends and family more than they have me, honestly, because I know what it feels like. I know what we're doing up there. I know the details of yeah, it. That's, that's the thing is that while we're up there, it doesn't feel sketchy. Like what we're doing feels totally normal. We're climbing. We're having a good yeah. time. It's like, um, yeah, I mean, it's funny. Hans always says safety first, fun second, speed third. And uh, I've sort of stolen a couple of his little mottos. And um, and I mean, I think it was true, you know? I mean, each each time, like, we'd go up there, we'd have a nice time, we'd feel safe, and, and at the end of the day, it wound up being pretty fast, too. 
And I think that was, you know, I think we were keeping it in the right order. But yeah, totally. And we would expose ourselves to the potential for long falls, but they're always pretty calculated. You know, it's like we like I like where I took my hundred foot fall, for instance, was a super sheer place. Like there's no way you could fall 300 feet there and not get hurt. And so, you know, I knew that Alex was going to dump the slack out of the rope in that one section. And I was okay with him doing that because, you know, if I were to fall, there's no ledges to hit. Um, so all the times that we're doing big falls, um, we're, you know, we're just, we're just being pretty, pretty analytical about it. And I've taken enough big falls on El Cap to know that if, as long as you don't hit anything, it can, it can be totally fine. <laughs> right. Yeah. But that's always the crux, of course, as long as you don't yeah. hit anything. So that's why you're looking, you're looking out for those things that you might hit. I just want to say that the thing with speed climbing is people are like, oh, it's so extreme. It's so, so whatever. But the thing is, I mean, you're climbing with a rope and a rack on. So at any point, if you don't feel comfortable, you can place a piece, you can sit down, you can stop, you can chill, you can repel. I mean, like literally all the options are on the table for you. And mm-hmm. so you only go as fast as you want to go. Um, you know, if at any point, like it feels frantic or insecure or, or sketchy, I mean, you can just stop. You know, I mean, right. in a lot of ways, you know, people say, think that speed climbing is so extreme, but, but I mean, it's a lot less committing than soloing because it's like you have a rope and a rack up there. You can just go down at any point if you want to stop. Yeah. You know, whereas like with free soloing, it's, you know, obviously a lot more committing because like once you start, you're sort of like, all right, I'm like in this, I'm, I'm sort of committed to a certain experience. But with speed climbing, I mean, also with speed climbing, um, you know, we would sort of see our split in the middle. And if Tommy, if Tommy's block wasn't that fast, then I would just take my block at a much more leisurely pace because, you know, if we're not doing the record, then I'm, I don't care about like soloing pitches and and going ballistic, you know, I'm just going to keep it kind of casual. And so a couple of the times when we were doing practice burns, I'd like passed an aid party and just like barred a number one Camelot off him so that I could like protect one of the next pitches I was doing, even though I wouldn't normally do that for the record. But I was kind of like, if I'm going to be climbing above these people and we're not going for a record anyway then i'm like i may as well do it safely you know one other strategic thing that we did is i think that some of the some of the previous record holders like i know the hubers were like this i feel like brad and jim were like this like they were they were going ballistic like they were out of control kind of in in terms of their speed potentially you know arguably like you know aid climbing by dynoing the cam into the crack and just like thrusting your way up and you know just being really like frantic um which i think is more dangerous alex from the beginning he's like i think what we need to do is keep like just go faster by keeping our in control speed like just continually upping that you know not get not really bring it more towards the like the out of control level like never get to that point just just flow better and do that's another han saying too though is uh smooth is fast you know smooth is fast like go smoothly you know it's all about just like nice and smooth like here we go you know and just like not stopping right um i think focusing on that instead of like pure speed was, was important for us yeah, and so for instance, when I took that 100 foot fall, I think that was our third time up. It was the first time where I was kind of like, oh, getting a little excited about it, maybe getting towards that that phase of maybe letting myself be a little bit l- less in control. Mm-hmm. And then I took that fall, and I was like, okay, that's definitely not the right thing to do. I need to just like breathe deep, slow <laughs> it down, take like a tenth of a more second to set each jam, make sure it's solid. And so that's how we did all the rest of our attempts. Yeah. Yeah, I hear what you guys are saying, um, and as you've alluded to earlier, you know, it's it's certainly arguable, almost probable that, you know, the Fitz Traverse, for example, just being exposed to alpine terrain for that long is, is way more dangerous, and you don't see the kind of response from the community, you know, I don't think when you guys did that, anyone was wringing their hands about, oh my gosh, these guys are doing this super dangerous stuff. But I do want to press you a little bit more about the 100-foot fall because the thing is, and I'm making an assumption here, Tommy, but I'm assuming you didn't see that fall coming. Like I'm assuming that was some sort of slip or something happened, you thought you were in, and then the next minute you're out. So it happens to be that in that place you were totally safe and maybe you had calculated, you know, okay, I can take a 100-footer here, so that's fine. And in other parts of the route, you calculated, okay, I can afford a 60 footer. So you protect it accordingly. But it's that to me, the disconcerting part is the fact 
that, you know, all of this relies upon the assumption that we're totally in control. But if you can fall on terrain that for you is relatively easy, I mean, are we really as in control as we think? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's that's a great point. And I mean, I would say where I took the 100 foot fall, like I said before, I was okay with Alex dumping the slack because we had calculated that fall, you know, the potential of that fall. And we tried to do that most of the route. Um, yeah, anybody could fall off 5-5 five, five terrain. I mean, there's definitely parts of the route where we're climbing mm-hmm. easy terrain where we're kind of in no fall uh, terrain. But that's actually the same whether you're speed climbing it or whether you're climbing the nose for the first time. So mm-hmm. for us, that's arguably safer because we're so experienced. We're carrying less gear. We just don't seem like we're going to fall. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, somebody who's like a five, nine climber and they've got 40 pounds of gear weighing them down in there in mountain boots and they're climbing that same terrain. That's more dangerous, you know? Yeah. Um, so one other thing that I've wondered about is, so you two are arguably the top, two most elite climbers on El Cap, maybe just on Granite period, you know, and like the whole world, certainly on El Cap. Um, and so the amount of risk that you guys are undertaking on 510 terrain or 511 terrain or whatever, that's, that's relative to you. Is there any part of you that wonders or feels slightly uncomfortable knowing that guys like Brad and Jim, who are certainly exceptional world-class climbers, but just do not have the same level of skill and fitness that you guys do, are out there, as you guys both said, you know, redlining it quite a bit more, quite a bit less in control, trying to compete with you guys? I, I would say that I do feel a little bit uncomfortable with that. Like, I mean, the same argument correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, but gets made between for free soloing for you all the time. People are like, oh, you're inspiring these youth to go free soloing. Whereas with that, you're like, well, free soloing is just real scary. So it's kind of self-regulating. People get 20 feet off the ground without a rope and they're like, oh God, you know, they're not going to go any higher. Um, but I, th- I think it's the same for speed climbing though. I mean, I think it's kind of self-regulating as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, probably. You know, I mean, hopefully people scare themselves straight before they take some hundred footer and, and break both their legs or something. But you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think it's the similar, similar idea because I mean, and and also I don't think there's anything wrong with encouraging people to speed climb to some extent, because I mean, I, I learned how to speed climb because I read Hans's book, how to speed climb. And I was like, Oh, the, you know, I mean, there's the classic quote in there. uh, The only thing better than, than, uh, than climbing is more climbing. You know, it's like the whole point of speed climbing is it allows you to climb more in the day. Yeah, but I but I do agree. I think sometime in the future there could be somebody that was inspired by the Hubers or Hans or us, and they decide to speed climb, and they just they're just not as experienced, and so it might be more dangerous. And that's you know that's definitely something to consider. Um, the other side of that is like, should nobody ever do anything extreme because they're worried it's gonna inspire other people to do extreme stuff? I mean, that would be kind of that'd be kind of a sad world. Well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I mean, I mean, I was inspired by the Hoovers. I mean, the 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 video, like, uh, you know, uh, Om Limit or whatever, like their movie when they're jugging. I was like, this is the fastest any human has ever jugged. I was like, this is so outrageous. Years I mean, <laughs> about five fourteen right. jugging. Like when you see Alex Hoover jugging, yeah. you're like, oh my god, it's like a beast has just been like unleashed on that rope. And I mean, <laughs> and there, there's something you know that's cool. Like I think that's awesome. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think there's real power in that kind of inspiration, and I think that that I, you know, I, I use that, I channeled that. And, uh, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with other people getting that as well. Yeah. So Brad and Jim are out of the game. Uh, I assume Hans is out at least for a while. No, Hans, Hans said he was out after, uh, we did the record in 2012. I mean, he had sort of given up on the whole thing back then. Are, are you guys out? Like, is this good? Calling it good and done with? Or do either of you have plans or intentions to try and take it even faster? I'm I'm good. I'm, I think I'm out. I mean, I wanted to go sub two in my life, and and uh, I think that's good enough for me. Yeah, I'm I'm the same. You know, I I, I think that um, I kind of think that if I like trained for it and we kept pushing, I mean, we could probably. I mean, the two of us just continuing could, could probably go to 145 or something. And then if we were like mm-hmm. specifically training for it, we could probably go you know, maybe even a little faster, but 
you know, I'm like, I wanted to go sub two, we went sub two, and there are plenty of other routes on El Cap, you know, I mean, I, I just don't feel like I need to climb the nose on many more times. Uh, like, I, I'm totally content. Thanks to Alex Honnold and Tommy Caldwell for making time for this interview, and thanks to Chris Kalman for leading the way. The Cutting Edge is presented by Hilleberg the Tent Maker. Learn more about their amazing tents at hilleberg.com. Thanks also to Black Diamond Equipment for sponsoring this episode of The Cutting Edge. You can learn more about The Cutting Edge podcast and see all of our episodes and photos at The Cutting Edge website. Just Google Cutting Edge Podcast and you'll find it. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald, editor of the AAJ, wishing you happy climbs. <laughs>